My name is Brian McAnally, and I am the, the 5 p.m. venue pastor, and I also serve as in the capacity of doing local outreach, the pastor of local outreach here at Scottsdale Bible. And uh, it is my honor to get to, to share God's word with you tonight in Jamie's absence. He is a, on the front end of a study break, and, and uh, he and the elders and the leadership have allowed me this opportunity. I'm very appreciative for it. And uh, just as Jamie does, I certainly believe in the value of opening up our time together uh, in prayer. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity for us to gather, for us to uh, convene together in your name, that we would open your word, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who is present, would anoint our ears for listening, that we would be ready to receive what you have for us, and Lord, that it would change us, and Lord, that because you are good and because you love us, your word would give us life, and it would be life that would make a difference as we depart from here later on tonight. Father, be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name we, say, we pray. Amen. For a few weeks now, <clears throat> Pastor Jamie has been leading us through this uh, series called The Point, where we uh, look at the uh, various doctrines of the church the, and, and these doctrines are the essential beliefs. These are what knit this church together. And so it's very important for us to know, understand, uh, comprehend what it is that we, we believe uh, that draws us together as, as a church family. And Pastor Jamie has really done a lot of the heavy lifting so far. He's, uh, two weeks ago, he took us through the Bible, and we, we looked at the inspiration of God's Word, the inerrancy of God's Word, and the authority of God's Word. And then last week, uh, Boy, we, we really dove into those deep waters of the Trinity, where, where Pastor Jamie led us through this, this very biblical concept that we all embrace, we, we all apprehend it, and that is this notion of God, the Godhead three in one, that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tonight, I'm going to talk with you a bit about this, this uh, message that's called the tipping point. And really, it's, it's about uh, the doctrine of sin, but we're also going to talk about the doctrine of man and the doctrine of salvation because all these uh, uh, issues are all tied in together. Um, but really, it's a tipping point because it's where faith meets life. It, it's really where we come into the, the unfolding drama of God's Word. We find out our play in this, our part in this. We, we discover how we interact with God's Word and with God Himself. We, we discover uh, the relationship between the Creator and the creation. And, uh, and it really is your opportunity tonight to either discover or discover again what God wants you to know, what he wants you to know about yourself, what he wants you to know about him, and what he wants you to know about your relationship with him. And in all those things, my hope is that you will not just walk away with a better knowledge, but you will have a deeper appreciation and you will have a deeper relationship with this God who wants you to know these things because he loves you very much and he wants you to live and flourish and prosper in this love. The world population is estimated at approximately seven billion. Some, some think that we've already surpassed it. Others have a, a date later on this year of us passing several seven billion people. That's a lot of people, seven billion people. That seven billion people represents thousands of ethnic groups all over this, this uh, world, all over this globe. We cover this globe and, and we are of different races, different ethnicities, but we all have one thing in, that co one thing in common. And that one thing in common is that we all came from somewhere. God wants us to know from where we came. God wants us to know our origin story. 
You know, there's theories out there, there's secular theories that we're not going to spend our time with tonight that, that make it very difficult and try and explain it in terms of millions and even billions of years. But God does not want you to be so confused. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to, to go on and, and cast listlessly about in this sea of ignorance, nor does he want you to be shipwrecked in a notion of deception or misinformation. In fact, God wants you so much to know your origin that he makes it incredibly simple. And so, even as we talk about the doctrine of sin tonight, I want to start with about the doctrine of creation. And to discover the doctrine of creation, you only have to go one page into your Bible. So, if you brought a Bible, I want you to challenge you tonight to, to find this reference, Genesis 1.1. It's where we're starting, but it's not where we're ending. And read that very first sentence that God wants you to know. What does that sentence say? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Boy, what a simple, direct, beautiful statement. That you don't have to navigate through, through the book of Third Habakkuk or, or find out what it, second, the book of Second Opinions means, which are not real books, don't go looking. From the very beginning, God wants you to know the truth. He, he just lays it out there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's really a beautiful sentence because the first thing it does is it reveals to us that God is eternal, that there was a beginning and God predates it. And because God predates it, he is sovereign over everything that comes afterward. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's on this foundation that we build our theology of the doctrine of creation. And so we're going to look at that and, and what's beautiful about this, to get the further story of what it means that, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in it, we only have to go one page. Turn your Bible one page to the, still in chapter one, and let's look at a few verses together. Verses 26 through 28 and verse 31. The scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And then move on down to verse 31. You read the scripture that reads, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now we can unpack this a lot, and we could spend a very long time looking at this, but I want us to look at three basic uh, considerations for this. And in doing this, we're going to see that this doctrine of creation that says that God created us, created man, created humankind in his image, and he called it very good. God created us in his image, and he called it very good. Now, the first aspect that I'd like you to consider is that what I've already said. God is the creator. We see that affirmed in verse 1, and we see that reaffirmed in verses 26 and 27. You see, God says, let us make man in our image. And then he gives the dominion to man to, uh, over the entirety of the, over the earth and all the creation upon it. You see, only one who is actually possessing of that authority can delegate that authority. And in this statement of God Saying it to be so, in verse 26, by the sheer force of his will, he pronounces the edict of the creation of man, and in the very next verse, it is so. 
And in this, we have a clear, irrefutable, factual detail that God is the creator of humankind. Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 7, we'll look, at, we'll look at that more closely in a little bit. We see in there the how God does that, and that's where it says that uh, God breathed into man the breath of life. That's the how that he did it. But for this purpose here, we just want to affirm that God is the creator. He is the one who is responsible for creation. Now, the second consideration that we want to look at is this very interesting term that says that he created us in his image. Now, what does that mean, that he created us in his image? Now, what the scripture actually reads is this uh, statement in verse 26 where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in that one sentence, we actually have an affirmation of the Trinitarian teaching that Jamie shared with us last week of the triune God responsible for creation, Father, Son, and Spirit making man in our image, but a singular, a singular God making that statement. So we have that affirmation. But we also have this comparing notion of, well, okay, well, what does that mean to be made in the image of this triune God. And we have two Hebrew words that are, that are spelled out here that uh, help us understand that. The first word that we have is this word tzalem. And tzalem is a, is a word that is used in the original language to speak of, it's typically used to, to refer to things of models and of statues and things that are, that are crafted to bear a likeness. We see that the scripture, I mean the same term tzalem is actually used later in Genesis chapter 5, when Seth is born to Adam and Eve, and it says that Seth was born Salem in the image or in the likeness of Adam. And what we take that, how we interpret that is that Adam was, I'm sorry, that Seth was born in the likeness of Adam, that he was of the same form, that he was a human baby, that he had pre presumably ten fingers, ten toes, two eyes, one mouth, two ears, that in every recognizable way, Seth was in the image of Adam. And that is the same um, form that has been perpetuated throughout history. Generation after generation, we see that the form begets the form. We have never seen any circumstance where a human has begotten a non-human being. Likewise, we have never seen a human being evolve into any other non-human being. You know, we may, be, uh, we may be, through natural selection, growing taller, faster, darker, uh, fatter, hairier, any number of different things by, by the reproduction of genealogy, but, but at no point do we ever see a human being beget into something that is not a human being. And likewise, we don't ever see, as, as, as complex and as, and as advanced as we are, we have not yet seen any human being be able to uh, sprout wings and fly, or, or to develop webbed feet that would be advantageous in swimming, or gills that would allow us to breathe underwater. You see, humans beget humans, and that's the way that it always is. We are created in the form of our forebears. Now I have three children. Kelly and I have three beautiful, lovely children. You can see their picture up there. That's Kaylin in the front, and Cotter, and Kelsey. And uh, I am horrible at that game of oh, you look just like your mother, or you, just look, you look just like your father. I've been told that I look just like my mom. I've been told I look just like my dad, and I just, okay, thank you. And the same thing is true when they say that about my kids. When they say, oh, your, your, your daughters look just like you. 
Well, I always say, well, but cuter. And then when they say, well, your, your daughters look just like your mother. I always say, well, thank you. That's, that's really a compliment. But I don't, I don't know how to play that game. But, but we have this acknowledgement that our girls look just like us. And our son is the, the, the doppelganger, the spitting image of, of Kelly's brother, Chris. I mean, you put their, their childhood pictures side by side and you think it's the same child. There is no denying that our children are in our likeness. And I am in the likeness of my parents. That is, that is how it is through us who are begotten by our, our lineage. Now there's a, there's a concern that in looking at the physical evidence that we have in the, in the uh, lineage of man that we might project that same idea to God. And if that were true, we might be tempted to, to consider God the way that the, the uh, cartoonist Gary Larson from the far side uh, used to draw God. You know, there he is on the screen, you know, the, the long bearded, what uh, robe-wearing man, and he's actually creating the earth there and sprinkling the globe with jerks just to spice things up a little bit. That's the tempting way to consider what God, who God is in heaven, but that's not the reality of what the scriptures say. In fact, what the scriptures tell us that in Exodus 12, we are told to not make any graven images of the creator because no created image could adequately or accurately uh, resemble the creator. Jesus, in both uh, in John chapter 4 as well as in chapter 5, he says, God is spirit and he must be worshipped in spirit. And then in chapter 5, he says, no one has ever heard the voice of God nor seen the form of him. And so when we start talking about what does it mean to be in the image or in the likeness of God in this regard, we can't go to this concept of a physical resemblance. In fact, what I would tell you is that because God is spirit, that's the indication of how we are in his likeness. The reality is, you are not like God in your bodily form. And some of you may be looking in the mirror and saying, well, thank you, God, for that. But the reality is, is the true you is the you that is inside your body. The true you is your soul. C.S. Lewis once said, he said, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. This is what it means to be in the image of God, to be made in the image of God. That the you that, that uh, withstands this event that awaits us all called death, that is the real you. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews 9 that after death comes judgment that the body will die, but then you will face judgment. Death is not the judgment. Death is the event that precedes judgment. And so the real you, the, the, the true you, is what will face judgment, and that is your soul, and that is what is created in the image of God, that you are a spiritual being the way the Father is a spiritual being. And that takes us to the second word. In the scripture it says, after our likeness, and that term likeness is an abstract noun uh, that's pronounced demuth, and because it's abstract, it's, that's their best rendering of it, is after our likeness. And it, and it uh, embraces this concept, whereas, whereas the first understanding of tselem is the physical resemblance, after our likeness is more about a personality uh, resemblance or, or a character resemblance. And earlier I had mentioned how I, re I resemble my parents physically, but I also resemble my parents in personality. And I'm sure many of you have that same characteristic with your parents. 
In fact, I can remember when I was uh, newly married with Kelly, we were, we were at seminary, and I, I, to this day I don't remember what I said, but I remember this experience where, where I said something and I could have sworn that my father was like right behind me. And, and I literally like looked over my shoulder like, because that wouldn't have come out of my mouth. It only would have come out of my dad's mouth. I mean, one of those things like, I don't even know. I mean, can't never did anything. Or can't stand lying, cheating, and stealing. I mean, those are like dad statements. And, you know, they stayed with me and I love them. But then all of a sudden I see myself saying them and I'm looking for my dad. Well, anyway, in that experience, I said it and Kelly caught it. She saw me like looking over my shoulder for my dad. And she kind of chuckled and she said, well, hello, Roy McAnally. And then I did something that my dad would not have done because he was smarter than I. See, I said, well, hello, Ruth Lane Cotter, you know, kind of snarky, and, and Ruth Lane Cotter is Kelly's mom. And I love Ruth Lane. She's a wonderful person, but guys, if you're engaged to be married or you're newly married, don't ever, ever do that, ever. <laughs> what we can't deny is that we bear a resemblance to those who have an impression upon us, don't we? And if that's true about your parents or other people of impact in your life, then certainly it's true about your creator, the one who has created you, who, who, who knit you in your mother's womb, who knows you better than you know yourself. Remember, we said in Genesis 2-7 that God breathed into man the breath of life, and it is that breath of life that makes us in the likeness of our Father. Job 32-7 says this. It says, but it is a spirit in people, the breath of the Almighty, that makes them understand. And Proverbs 20-27 says, the human spirit is like a lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. So in that regard, how are we in the image of God? We are in the image of God in our form as spiritual beings and in our function to be living functionally as spiritual beings. We are like our creator in form and in function. And that takes us to the third consideration, which is this. He says in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. You know, when we, when we look at this statement, it's easy to, to understand it, but it's also easy to misunderstand it. One thing that we want to make clear is that, that God didn't uh, cascade through the days of creation and, and then, uh, and like give him the proverbial, you know, pat on the back for each step of the job. Of course, we know that's not true because God is spirit and doesn't have a back. But it's also not, not as though God is, is assessing this and then, you know, saying, hey, this is so great, this is so good, and like giving high fives to the heavenly chorus and, you know, collecting uh, literally applause from the choir. You see, what it says for God to assess something as very good, it's, he's actually pronouncing judgment upon it. And God did this at every step of the way through creation. After each step, at the conclusion of each day, God judged it, God assessed it, and he said, it is good. And in saying it is good, what he's doing is he's actually saying, you know what, this is in accordance with me. This is right. This is in total unity with me. It is holy. It is perfect. It is paradise. It is good because that's who God is. His creation was in total conformity with his identity. 
And then you get to this, this crowning moment of creation. On the sixth day, he created man. And he makes this statement. He doesn't just say, and it was good. He says, and it was very good. This is the seventh time he says this statement. And he adds this adjective, very. And so it's not a matter of him bragging on his kids the way I brag on mine. It's not like, hey, you know, your neighbor kids are good, but my kids, they are very good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, of all these things that are good, of all these things that are in conformity with my, with my identity, man, humankind, this man, this woman, they are very good. They are, they are of an order and of a magnitude of favor from God that surpasses all others. And why? Because they alone bear his likeness because he breathed into them the breath of his spirit. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if that's where the story ended? We could just close up the Bible here. We have 22 minutes left. We say, hey, time's it. That's all we have to say. God is good. We are good. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go on. That'd be awesome. Unfortunately, it would be incredibly disingenuous. Because as we look around, we recognize that this thing that God has said is very good doesn't seem very good, does it? We seem to, to turn on the news every night and hear stories of very violent things done to God's people who are very good, committed by people who God said were very good. We hear of oppression. We hear of abuse. We hear of, of, of just horrible things, one after the other. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, and we say, and this is God's creation, and you said it was very good? We can't reconcile that. And some of us, you know, we don't even have to look beyond our mirror to struggle with this notion that God said it was very good. You know, I don't know any of you very well, apart from my wife and my daughter, but I know myself. I know my own past. I know my own offenses. I know those things that would be labeled against me if I were standing in judgment. And I, and I hazard the guess that you're not much different than me because I know what God says that we all cannot reconcile this notion that we are good when we, when we have this experience that we are not. And that leads us to the second uh, consideration in this doctrine of, of man which really is the doctrine of sin. And that, and that point is this and that is that, that every one of us has gone our own way. Now to explore this, we go back to the, to the first people, we go back to the creation. In chapters two and three, we see how this, this drama unfolds. The man, the woman, they had been given every provision that they could have wanted. They were in paradise. We know it as the Garden of Eden. A lot of discussion on what that meant, what that looked like, but it was a beautiful place. It was a place of perfection. There was no crime, there was no violence, there was no tears, no sorrow, there was no bad weather, there was, there was nothing but beauty and perfection because it was God's creation. He had said it was good. And in the middle of this creation, God said, you may eat freely of everything in this creation except for this one thing, this one forbidden fruit in the middle of the garden from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is where I brought my prop this is what's come to be known as the forbidden fruit. I don't personally think it was an apple, but 
But that's, what, you know, it's almost become an archetype that we, we see an apple and it's the forbidden fruit. I can almost guarantee you it's not this type of fruit. Kelly told me that this is actually a pinata apple, and I'm pretty sure that's not indigenous to the area. But of all the things that the creation could eat, there was one prohibition. Do not eat from this one. For if you do, you will surely die. Loving God, protective creator, issues one restriction, one prohibition, and it was for their benefit. But yet it's exactly with this fruit, this one forbidden place where they disobeyed. It's where they willfully rebelled. This is the original sin. They disbelieved and they disobeyed. If you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, you can take a, take a look about how this drama unfolds. In the first uh, three verses, we see that, that uh, the man and the woman, they encounter this serpent. The serpent is the embodiment of the enemy. And it's exactly here with this, in the notion of this forbidden fruit where the temptation began. And the first thing that the enemy did is he, he, he actually referred to God for the first time in the account as God rather than the Lord God. We see that the enemy spoke about God in irreverent terms and introduced the notion to Adam and Eve, to the man and the woman, that they could be irreverent before God. And then the very next thing is he, he, he misrepresented God's position. He said, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? And when that misrepresentation took place, the woman said, well, she misstated what God had said herself. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, for if you do, you will surely die. Oh, we must not touch the tree, lest you die. Pick up in verse 7 and read with me. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now I could try and break this down for you here, and, but, but the reality is James chapter 1 does it better than, that, better than I could do. He says in verses 13 through 16 in God's word, let no one say when he is tempted, I am be tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, before, the woman saw this fruit simply for what it was, something that was prohibited from her, something that was denied to her husband. Now, though, with her reverence for God destroyed, and with this seed of temptation taking root, her eyes were indeed opened. She now saw this fruit uh, was good for food. It was pleasing to her eye. It was desirable for wisdom. This is what our, our venue pastor, Rick Holman, calls the root sin. And because she uh, embraced this root sin, what she had heard from her ears, she now trumped with what she saw with her eyes because of the deception of the enemy. She did not take the opportunity to flee. She did not take the opportunity to rebuke the enemy. Instead, what did she do? She indulged. 
This is what Pastor Rick says is the fruit sin. And with this indulgence, with this consumption of the fruit, the man and the woman sentenced themselves to death. True to his word, God pronounced judgment upon them. But the first thing he did is he cursed Satan and he cursed the earth. And then he penalized the man and the woman with the consequences for the rebellion. Ultimately, he did sentence them to die. Look at verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3. He said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, this was the original rebellion. This was the original sin. And this is what was impugned or imparted upon us. And so the reality is that not only did we turn our own way back in the beginnings, back in our origins, we have gone our own way ever since. The scriptures make it very clear that the same rebellious nature that was birthed in Adam and in Eve exists within each one of us. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 makes it very clear. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You know, we have this situation involving a root sin and a fruit sin, and because of it, every one of us is stricken with this terminal sin nature. And it may not seem fair that something that was done so long ago has this, this cataclysmic effect on every one of us. Let's watch a very brief video from Dr. Wayne Grudem, and he helps us understand this notion of imparted sin and the fairness of it all. Tell us about how Adam uh, can, plays into original sin. Is he a representative? Was he a pattern of what is to come? Uh, would we have done the same thing in his place? There's a lot of questions that people have on original sin. Can you mm -hmm. just give us a, just a kind of a working explanation of what is original sin and, mm -hmm. and why does the Bible talk about that? Mm -hmm. Well, this is another one of those doctrines that we wouldn't know about or believe unless the Bible taught it. But it says right back at the time when Adam and Eve sinned that Adam was counted as a representative of the entire human race. And Romans 5:19 says, by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Mm. So we were made sinners by Adam's sin. Yeah. Um, you might say, well, that's not fair. Um, but then the next phrase says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Well, that's Jesus, the one man's obedience. If you don't think it's fair that, you, that Adam's sin was reckoned to your account, then you shouldn't think it fair that Christ's righteousness is reckoned to your account as well. So I don't think God made angels the, in that way so that, it, that that could happen. But he did make the human race in that way, all descended from one man, Adam. That's why the historicity of Adam as an, as, and Eve as historical figures is also crucial. It protects the unity of the human race. Um, so uh, we inherited a sinful nature and a sinful standing, guilty standing before God because of Adam's sin. Whether we like that or not, the Bible just says that's how God counts it. And so now how do we deal with it? Well, then we need forgiveness. 
our sins, and we need rescuing from the sinful acts that we all commit to. You see, this is the, the uh, affirmation of scriptural evidence. Scripture after scripture says that, that we are all in this fallen state, that every one of us is hopeless on our own. The scriptures say, for all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And not only does the scripture affirm it, but, but so does all of human history affirm it. And not only does all of human history affirm it, every one of our personal histories affirm it. You know, we could look around and we could say, well, I'm not a bad person. Well, unless you're a perfect person, you are not good enough. And again, I don't know uh, how good you are. All I can go to is myself. And all I, can, I, all I can do is look at the account of my life and say, on my own, I am hopeless. Because it is what my, what my history says, and as I match up my history with what God's word says, on my own, I am hopeless. And God's word says that you are in the same predicament that I am in. And it doesn't matter if you miss that mark by a millimeter or a kilometer or a kilometer's worth of kilometers. If you miss the mark, you miss the mark. And if you fall short, you fall short. And falling short is not attaining or arriving at the glory of God. This is what it means. This is the consequence of what happened to God's people who, see, who he said are very good when they go their own way. And just like that first point where we said, boy, wouldn't it be great if we ended up here because God said it was good and we could all walk out happy? Well, how tragic it would be as if, if the message ended here, that we all fall short, that on our own there is no hope. But thankfully, God in his goodness has said that is not where the story ends. That is not where his message ends. That takes us to our final point in this doctrine of man, this doctrine of sin, which is really an introduction to the doctrine of salvation. And that's where we learn that God is in the process of redeeming humankind, and it is our great hope. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. That's the scene of the tragic fall. Immediately after the confession of the woman, I want you to see what God says. So Genesis chapter 3, pick up in verse 14. The Lord God says to the serpent, said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, you need to catch this, because this is great. This is awesome. Man and woman, they just failed. They just fell. They are, they are on their face in fallenness. And what is the very first thing that God does? He pronounces his plan of redemption. In cursing the enemy, he also issues forth his first messianic prophecy. What a great word that is for you and for me. He condemns that enemy. And later he condemns the earth that has now been corrupted by this rebellion. And then God promises the arrival of a descendant who will one day crush the head of the deceiver. So when you understand this notion that God is all about the redemption of his people, it totally changes your perspective and allows you to appreciate everything that comes afterwards. Let's look at it so we can understand better. Jump down to verse 21. 
Scripture reads, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take a hold also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east garden, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, a casual reading of, this, uh, <clears throat> of these three verses might cause you to, to, to think that Adam and Eve sinned, they fell, he, he pushed them out, and then he placed two, two uh, angels like on the edge of the garden, almost like it's like Clint Eastwood with a shotgun, you know, like yelling at the neighborhood kids, stay off of my yard. And that's, but that's not what we have here. That's, that's like the classic traditional understanding. But, but that's, I want to tell you, that's not what God is doing here. First of all, if you know anything about the cherubim, you would know that, that, that God's warring angels, these were bad dudes. We know from 2 Kings chapter 19 that one cherub killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So it would be a little bit overkill for God to put at least two of these on the edge to protect against these, these two humans who were weaponless and just cast out. But beyond the logical argument of that, there's also a scriptural argument. The scripture makes it clear that, that these, these cherubim were guarding the way to the tree of life. In God's initial statement of judgment after the fall, who did God address? He addressed Satan. He addressed the enemy. And he said, in effect, he said, dude, your days are numbered. There will be a day when Jesus is coming and he is going to crush your head. So who would have been motivated to, to find this tree of life? Who would have been motivated to eat from its fruit? Who would have been motivated to rebel against God and try and thwart that plan? I submit to you, friends, that, that it was not Adam and Eve who needed to be protected from, from this fruit. I submit it was Satan. And I posit that because we have scriptural evidence that Satan was relentless throughout human history in his attempt to defeat the Son. Because if he defeated the Son, he would be in effect, he would be in effect thwarting the Father. I believe that this is why we see that every effort was made to corrupt Adam's line that resulted in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. I believe that this is why we see that uh, there was great efforts made to kill Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 20. I believe this explains the famine in Genesis chapter 50. I believe that it explains the, the uh, genocide in Exodus chapter 1 where all the Jewish males were killed. If you kill the line, you kill the Messiah. I believe it explains the, the Pharaoh's uh, murderous rage where he pursued them all the way to the Red Sea in, in Exodus chapter 14. I believe this explains why all the time during the kings that there was attack after attack on the line of David. Because if you overcome that line, you overcome God's plan. Yet God faithfully protected the line. I believe this explains Haman's uh, effort his very Hitler-esque effort in Esther chapter 3. And then when you move to the New Testament, I believe you see Satan's effort in trying to be manipulative that would have allowed uh, Joseph to disavow Mary 
with cat catastrophic implications. But God protected it. God, God visited Math, uh, Joseph, and that was circumvented. We see that, that uh, Herod tried to play the role of Pharaoh in Matthew chapter 2 and kill the boys. We see that Luke, in Luke chapter 4, that Satan took a, a personal approach to it and three times tried to overcome the Son of God. And when that didn't work, later in that same chapter, we see that Jesus was ministering in Nazareth, and what did the people do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. Yet God supernaturally protected him. In example after example, we see that the effort came from the enemy to overcome the Son. In fact, we've got this one experience that we know as the crucifixion. Finally, the enemy had won. Finally, the sun was hanging from a cross. Finally, God was dead. Finally, the enemy had his victory. Well, for a weekend. But praise God, Jesus rose from the dead. Praise his name that he is alive. Praise his name that he is God. You see, he's about the work of redemption. And he wants you to know it. He's alive now and he's alive forevermore. And he wants you to understand that you cannot get to the Father except through him. He clearly identified his purpose in John 3, <clears throat> verses 17 and 18. What does he say there? He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In this same gospel, Jesus says several things, and this is what we close with. I want you to hear the words of Jesus himself. There, was, there would be some who would want you to believe that Jesus didn't ever say that he was God, that Jesus didn't ever want you to, to, to misunderstand him that way. But to that, I, I lovingly say, baloney. Jesus was so faithful to reveal who he is and what his purpose is. Look at what he said. In John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go, I'm sorry. <clears throat> if, enter, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. Just two verses later in verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes, I'm sorry, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. And then finally, John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, the doctrine of sin is a very sad reality. That we have gone our own way 
and we have been doing it ever since. That same propensity, that, that same um, desire to go your own way, that's what you contend with, it's what I contend with. But thankfully, you have a Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Now in closing, I would say this. Either you have a Redeemer named Jesus, or you need a Redeemer named Jesus. And God's invitation is clear. If you do not know Jesus in this way, as the truth, as the life, as the Son of God, as the one who offers you this redemption, his invitation is offered to you now. He came so that you would believe, and in believing you would have life in his name. My exhortation to you is if you do not know Jesus in this way, that tonight that you would call upon the name of the Lord and that you would be saved, that you would begin this life of faith. We're going to have a time of closing prayer, and then after it's done, I'm going to, to linger around here for a while, to stick around here. I want to invite you, if this is something that you would like to discuss further, I'll stay as long as we need to stay to talk about that because there's nothing more important than to experience and receive the redemption offered through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are, that you love us so much that you tell us the truth about where we came from, where it went wrong, and what our hope is. God, I, I believe that by your word you, you mean what you say and that our only hope is in Jesus. That you came to, to save that was lost. You came to redeem what needed redemption. You came to restore us what was broken in the original fall and what we keep breaking ever since. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior and that tonight would be the night of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give them the courage to pursue this. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would thwart the enemy who would work very hard to cause them to resist it. And Father, for those who are saved, those who are redeemed, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would leave here tonight affirmed and validated in our faith that we would walk by faith and not by sight and it would be pleasing to you and it would bring you much glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you very much. God bless you and good night.